Thank you for joining us for this Prima podcast. My name is Taekwon Gilbert. I am the education coordinator at Prima and the moderator for today's podcast. October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month was designed to increase awareness regarding the significance of cybersecurity, as well as provide the necessary resources to ensure people are safe and secure online. To commemorate the 17th anniversary of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Prima created a National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Each week during the month of October, Prima will feature podcasts that share important information about cybersecurity. On this podcast, Josh Corman, Senior Special Advisor for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, will talk about the Internet of Things as it pertains to healthcare. Please enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Josh. Thank you for including me. So first off, you don't have the traditional background in coming to CISA, or government for that matter. You served on a congressional task force for healthcare industry cybersecurity. Can you tell us that experience and some of the findings that stood out most while on the task force and since the pandemic? Yeah, it is a bit of an untraditional hire. Director Krebs from CISA called me just after the pandemic started in full recognition that we needed a really wide swath of backgrounds and talent to make sure we're doing the right things to protect the public, both from the virus and from adversaries in cyberspace. So my journey that probably puts me here is um, I've been in cybersecurity for 20 years, and without giving my full biography, I'm what you get when you put a philosopher in the hacker community for for a couple decades. But about 10 years ago, I started getting very worried about the rise of hacktivism and the rise of anonymous and chaotic actors, and I thought this was an early indicator of some unintended consequences of hyperconnectivity and connected technology, and that eventually got me interested in cyber-terrorism, which did rear its ugly head. Uh, we had um, a former member of Anonymous join the cyber caliphate, or found the cyber caliphate, join ISIS, and moved to Raqqa, Syria, before being killed by a drone strike. A UK honor student named Junaid Hussein, who radicalized. So this really put me further into the circles of the intelligence community and government and international policy. And after a few tragedies and trying to get as high and deep as I could in the federal government, I did found a, a volunteer group of helpful hackers called IamTheCavalry.org. And my recognition was the cavalry isn't coming. Nobody was going to save us. It's not that we didn't have good people in government. It's that the public wasn't ready yet. The recognition wasn't there yet. And instead of being overwhelmed that no one was going to save us, the, the general idea was what can the hacker community do to be empowered and be a helping hand instead of a pointing finger and maybe get us more prepared sooner. And as such, we've been, you know, good faith ambassadors and translators and educators to the public, public policymakers and safety critical industries. And that earned us a seat on the 20, the, from CISA 2015, the, the law, not the organization, the Computer Information Sharing Act of 2015, asked for a task force for Congress on healthcare industry cybersecurity that work really got me and 20 others really deep down the rabbit hole on some of the systemic weaknesses or opportunities in healthcare delivery and biopharmaceutical and the overall sector. Those findings were published. I like to refer to our task force that was bookended by two pretty serious events. One was that a single open source library flaw and a single medical device took out patient care at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital for a week. They had to cancel surgeries, divert ambulances in L.A. traffic. Pretty terrifying that an accident could affect patient care and maybe public safety human life. 
And then as we were taking that charge into the gravity and seriousness of the task force, so it wouldn't just be about your privacy, I made the joke that I love my privacy, I'd like to be alive to enjoy it, we really focused on patient safety and availability of hyperconnected medical devices and medical systems. Now, sadly, as we were printing the materials for Congress on Mother's Day weekend, WannaCry became the largest existence proof or attack on medical infrastructure in history. It was mostly damaging to the national healthcare system of the UK. The US got fairly lucky for a bunch of different reasons, but it affected 40% of their healthcare delivery for the better part of a weekend. And if you had a really time-sensitive issue like a stroke where you have maybe three or four hours to save brain and save life, many parts of the UK had zero trauma centers open for that whole weekend. So if you had a stroke, there's a very good chance you had a loss of life or permanent damage that was otherwise avoidable. So this really raised the stakes. And a lot of the recommendations we have been made have been slowly but surely being acted upon by Health and Human Services, by Congress. There's a software bill of materials project that NTA is driving that FDA requires. And I think the, the COVID crisis took our basic concerns and took them up several orders of magnitude. So I think some of the trust that we have built with different parts of the government, including but not limited to CISA, made us an obvious ally to consult and bring in. And Congress passed the CARES Act, allowing for some temporary one-year hires to help with the COVID crisis for domain expertise across cybersecurity, medicine, et cetera. And I've been trying to make sure we measure twice, cut once. We bolster the overall approach from CISA and from the whole of government on protecting our interests on things like healthcare delivery with things like Project Taken or with the much larger government effort of Operation Warp Speed, which is to accelerate the development and distribution of vaccine therapeutics and diagnostics to protect the U.S. and its interests. So I think that relevant experience just meant, let's, you want to see something different, let's try something different. And uh, some of the more breathtaking results we had during peacetime or without the pandemic were made possible through these non-traditional partnerships and collaborations like I Am The Cavalry. There's a different one during the early pandemic called CTI League. It was a bunch of cyber threat intelligence professionals voluntarily helping to scour the internet for evidence of people targeting hospitals and then working with government to do botnet takedowns quickly to make it harder for adversaries to attack our vulnerable hospitals during our attempt to flatten the curves this, this spring. So it's, it's just an existence proof that there can be helpful hackers. Hacking is magic, right? It's not just a criminal thing. It's uh, There's good wizards and bad wizards. And at this moment in history, we really need the best and brightest volunteers from non-traditional sources to help. And I've come in for a year to do that with uh, Chris Krebs and his team. You touched on how the pandemic has had a major impact on the medical and healthcare industry. Can you discuss the work you've done to support CIS's COVID-19 response? And how does I Am The Cavalry plan to that? Yeah, it's, um, I've been here about two months officially. Uh, we've been in the recruitment stage, and there's been a lot of volunteerism from the outside, even prior to that or in parallel. But there's a lot of aspects to what the government needs to do and can do to, to assist. Part of this mission is to be the national risk management advisor to the federal government and to designated critical infrastructure like healthcare. So some of this work is doing systemic risk analysis, supply chain analysis, on things like Operation Warp Speed. So of the two things, Project Taken was really predates Operation Warp Speed and was meant to allow for and ensure available, safe, reliable patient care delivery during the initial stages of the crisis when we were trying to flatten the curve to desperately not overdress key hospitals and hotspots that had 
more capacity they can handle. So in those moments, it's already scary when fighting Mother Nature, but on top of that, what if accidents and adversaries in cyberspace are ransoming a hospital and locking up systems? If you have diminished capacity at a time of peak need, not only would we have a loss of life, but it could also trigger a crisis of confidence in the public to trust their government, to trust healthcare, and trust otherwise superior medical advances. It's a pretty terrifying intersection, and efforts like the CTI League and other groups that were volunteering to find and help take down attacker infrastructure was quite helpful. And I and the cavalry participants did quite a bit like that as well through those groups and others. Separately, there were attacks on PPEs and ventilators and supply chains where we had finite resources and people were trying to get in a hurry. So there were ransom activities there, and some of those could be deterred, disrupted, and the like. It was also reaching out to some of the, the major suppliers and their suppliers beneath them to help give them situational awareness and intelligence of what kind of attack campaigns were happening and how they were doing them, how to prepare themselves and to offer services that CISA has already delivered through taxpayer-funded services we have 365 days a year. So certain cyber hygiene scanning to look for known vulnerabilities on your website, certain advisory services, incident response, and the like. When we shifted into Operation Warp Speed, which was while I was being recruited, this is a much larger part of the government putting a lot of money into the science to advance the develop, research and development and clinical trials, scaled production, and ultimately distribution as we run this relay race. This involves the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, HHS clearly for helping to pick which entities are strategically important. And CISA plays a, a role in that as well, where some of that supply chain risk analysis is, is a skill set I brought to bear here with some medical domain experts. And we took a holistic look, not just at the obvious players, but which parts of the overall value in supply chain may be strategically necessary, but less obvious. So maybe we only have a finite supply of one particular chemical or one particular service. Can we ensure that we marshal limited government resources and time to be fit for purpose and valuable to ensure they have reliable, sustainable, available production of the goods that we need while we need them. This both protects, in fact, one way I break this down in our CISA summit in my opening is there really the consequences delay on Operation Warp Speed could involve at least three dimensions. Biological, in that even a one-month delay at current infection rates translates into about 5 million loved ones. So we really don't want any delay that's avoidable. There's a geopolitical impact, which is how the U.S. performs on the world stage and could either cement our position in the global order and as a leader of the free world or severely harm that standing and could take decades to recover. And then third is economic, which is that how this all plays out and how we perform could have pretty deleterious impact on U.S. businesses, on the U.S. dollar, and subsequent poverty could affect more loss of life than COVID itself. So we take this fairly seriously, and we're bringing together very creative ideas, both what this is used to doing and net new things. We're trying to do rapid innovation and cast a wide net to find all willing allies, whether they're CISA employees, CISA contractors, or just private sector experts that can be brought to bear when we identify a new challenge, how to marshal talent, resources, and ideas to improve those. The dependence of connected technology in the medical and healthcare industry also introduces many vulnerabilities. Can you talk about the work your organization is doing and has done to increase security measures? Absolutely. I guess it depends on which organization we're referring to. Uh, I guess I'll hit a, a few hats we've worn. So the problem statement for I and the Cavalry seven years ago, we were born on August 1st, 
2013, was that our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety, human life, and national security. The shorthand for that for my neighbors or for my, my family members is it's wherever bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. So we have a pretty wide net of public safety, human life topics in cyberspace. But of all of them, I have always had a special place in my heart for connected medicine. And part of that is some of the personal reasons I ended up launching I in the Cavalry after a tragic loss. But another part is that of all the things that could kill people or have mass casualty events, I think medical is possibly the most likely. And one of the reasons is for all the potential adversaries in cyberspace, there's, there's a learning curve for many things. Like if you want to hack a car, you have to figure out how CAN bus works. If you want to hack a critical infrastructure or power plants, you have to learn SCADA and other protocols. But if you want to hack healthcare, it's basically the same kind of things that most people know. It's Windows. It's uh, virtual IT and infrastructure. There's really less learning curve. And relative to other industries, healthcare has significantly fewer cybersecurity professionals because of the budget and resource constraints. A few uncomfortable truths that we uncovered during the second hat, which is that Congressional Task Force on Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity, is a fantastic report in that. And the very first graphic after you get through the intros it's a thermometer with five data points on it that says cybersecurity is in critical condition. That was the consensus of 21 of us from very diverse backgrounds, including healthcare providers, being very honest with the public that we have some pretty big exposure points. And those five quickly are there's a severe shortage of security talent. Our estimate is that 85% of U.S. healthcare organizations, health delivery organizations, lack a single qualified security person on staff. The large hospitals tended to have somewhere between 50 and 150 people, but small, medium, and rural tended to have no one. So that's a pretty disturbing thing when there's really not much talent there on staff to respond to some of these crises. Number two is that there's a pronounced amount of legacy and old unsupported technologies, whether it's Windows XP and old operating systems or just very old, harder-to-defend medical devices, maybe even hooked up to human beings like ventilators or bedside infusion pumps. Number three is that with the best of intention in the race to precision medicine and connected technology, we hyper-connected everything before we had really thought it through. So some of the, the race to electronic medical records added connectivity and Internet dependence to devices that were never designed or threat modeled for that role. So while we could eventually make safe and reliable Internet-connected devices, in most cases people took older devices that were never meant to be connected to anything, and they, they very quickly connected them to everything to qualify for payment and reimbursement. And number four, we have evidence now that through whether it was Hollywood Presbyterian at the beginning of our task force or whether it was the WannaCry attacks on the UK after our task force was wrapping up, we do know that this isn't just a privacy thing. This is that vulnerabilities can affect patient safety and timely availability of patient care. And lastly, typical medical devices, we, we call it a known vulnerabilities epidemic, but a couple technologies that were pretty representative were looked at by some good faith hackers and found that one particular technology had 1,400 known vulnerabilities in it. And even if a, a single digit percentage of those are vulnerable to attack, it's still a pretty terrifying moment. So if you put them together, 85% of the hospitals lack a single security person on staff. They're defending really old, harder-to-defend things that are overconnected to each other and usually reachable by the outside world. A single flaw in a single device could affect patient care, and a typical device gives you a 1,000 chances to do it. It's not good news. And many of those findings have been acted upon by the Sector Coordinating Council, by HHS. Even Congress helped add some pressure on a few of them. 
but it takes a long time to prepare hospitals. And I think what we were trying to do is be left of boom, ahead of harm, to make sure that they were ready for such a, an event that might need it. And COVID may, in fact, be that crisis that means we should have dug this well before we were too thirsty. I and the Cavalry specifically did have some huge wins with the Food and Drug Administration. They really heard the call, have been fantastic teammates under Dr. Suzanne Schwartz and her team at CDRH. And they've ratcheted up the basic minimum hygiene requirements for new medical devices that are being approved through pre-market. And they've been very aggressive at doing safety communications and recalls in their post-market guidance when flaws are found and can't be remediated safely. So we're doing our best to be preventative. I think COVID is a race condition for us where we may now need more reliable and dependable health care than we have. But I think we're much better prepared over the last seven years than we otherwise may have been. We've seen and heard about ransomware and malware attacks on hospitals and other medical facilities. What advice do you have for organizations looking to prepare against this type of cyber threat or attack? This is the challenging part. There's a couple... And I think this is one of the reasons that Director Krebs really wanted myself and other COVID hires to come make sure we had real ground truth. We're very connected to the demographic and the stakeholders in this very diverse community. It's almost a tale of two cities. We have some very well-funded security programs at some of the hospitals, and we have very malnourished and underfunded and under-resourced ones that are more prone. So the advice we're going to give is going to have to be fit for purpose, grounded in the realism that you're not going to have a magic wand to wave here. So since ransomware has been one of the top risks here in this uh, healthcare delivery environment, and it's unlikely that we're going to be immune to attacks from any number of different methods that could be used. Phishing is on the rise, and there are other techniques. There's a lot of known exploitable vulnerabilities that need to be patched. One of the things we've been encouraging is one of the best cures for ransomware is not necessarily to stop it. It's to be able to get back up. If you get knocked down, get back up. So the notion of do you have a backup offline storage and restoration implementation that could recover quickly if you are a victim of an attack. So maybe you'll fall down several times before the COVID crisis is over, but you can have a fast recovery and get back to work might be helpful. We also are encouraging crisis management tabletop exercises. I've done these in as little as an hour or two where you can gather the executives and the stakeholders within the hospital and do a fictitious ransomware event with a couple slide decks guiding you through the decision points and the events, and you can see which mistakes you make in a practice round versus in a real life and death circumstance. It's, it's often revealing and can motivate political will and executive will to do things differently or shore up your weak spots, just like we do with our kids in school, right? You, you want to practice the fire drill before the fire. Those could be helpful. What they tend to reveal is an opportunity to do some segmentation in isolation within your network. So maybe an attack of one device doesn't take out the whole hospital. It takes out one floor or one wing and contains the damage. There's a number of resources on the CISA website and on HHS websites and even FBI that have given additional guidance. One of the new problems we didn't anticipate is with so much telework and telepresence, a lot of hospital staff and IT security staff that did exist has to operate differently. So some of this new telepresence technology is new forms of vulnerability, and we have guidance on hardening some of that. And some of the um, telepresences hurt us in, in less predictable ways. We have, through our monitoring of the space, we have seen that it used to take a certain number of days from when a new vulnerability was announced until it was patched. We are seeing a fairly noticeable drop-off rate in patching, even from organizations that had previously been good at it. Some obvious 
hypotheses as to why is if you furloughed your tech staff or if you're afraid of doing a patch that might need hands-on remediation in, in the office, people may be loath to or reluctant to do patching. And yet, given the, the dramatic impact it could have on patient care, we're encouraging people to fight through that cognitive dissonance. So while they may be afraid to or be trying to save some money by not having staff in the office and or exposed unnecessarily to COVID, there may be severe consequences for that drop-off in patch rates. At the time of this recording, I'm sad to report that in Germany last week, there's the first admitted to fatality linked to a ransomware event. So a ransom not intending to hurt anybody in a hospital did affect hospital operations, and someone who had to take a, a longer ambulance ride to the next nearby facility to get care uh, died en route. So the facts of that case are being studied and picked apart, but it's not surprising, and it's something we've been warning about for years, that any delayed integrated patient care can affect mortality rates. In fact, we often quote one that has nothing to do with cybersecurity. It was a Boston Marathon study in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at many U.S. marathons, and it found that if you had a heart attack during a marathon in one of the U.S. marathon cities, you had a 4.4-minute longer ambulance ride, and your 30-day mortality rate was statistically significantly different. We extract that any delays in patient care for time-sensitive things like brain, heart, lungs could affect mortality rates. And we, that's why we stress the urgency of dependable and resilient healthcare delivery that we're just not in a position to have in all places at all times right now. So some of that advice is going to be, irrespective of your size, um, certain critical patches that CISA puts its, uh, its weight behind really do command your attention. And even if it's uncomfortable or you have other good reasons to not want to patch, patching is a very important step to take right now. It may, it may save lives. Two is uh, practice a disaster recovery simulation, like a tabletop crisis simulation on a ransom. Number three, if you're going to get hit often and maybe not be able to afford it with your current resources or your maturity level, can you get back up? And that's really implementing testing that backup offline storage and restoration. The offline storage is key so that, that isn't also compromised. And there's plenty of materials like this and others and services we offer like cyber hygiene scanning to help you find if you're overlooking a known vulnerability on one of your sites. But uh, it's going to take a lot more than just uh, a few government services to, to steal yourself and prepare for this. Uh, but we want people to be as diligent in educating themselves as possible. And some of these engagements where we might even help you assess your security posture may reveal much more fit for purpose and customized advice between now that can be implemented between now and the end of the crisis. My sense is the big learning lessons will be after the crisis as we get a lot more data as to what hit people, how it hit people, and what the most material investments might look like over the next several years. This week's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month's theme is about the steps the healthcare industry and their consumers can take to do their part in cybersecurity. Where do things currently stand, and what can everyone listening today do right now to be a part of the solution rather than the problem? There's uh, probably many aspects to answering that question. One of the more thought-provoking types of conversation I've had lately outside of CISA is that I think we've had lots of problems in, in U.S. healthcare in the global supply chain for healthcare anywhere. The good news is efforts like I am the Cavalry and some of the work from the FDA have ratcheted up the cyber hygiene level for the future technologies that we can deploy. I think the broader issues have been the last mile. So even in the cases where we've had recalls, where we've determined that certain devices were less safe for clinical use, hospitals and doctors have largely ignored them before COVID and may continue to after. I think what we want to do is uh, 
take the after action and lessons that we see here, even independent of cybersecurity, I think we have seen that the current approach and capacity of healthcare delivery has been strained and stressed in new and novel ways by this exogenous circumstance. So if we do take a big step back and refactor the right balance of investment in new technologies, in telehealth, in doctor and nurse and frontline responder ratios and staffing, in our dependence on connected technology, that we also need to take that moment to look at the IT and cybersecurity strategies that are most defensible, reliable, and trustworthy. I often talk about this issue in terms of dependence, that we are over-dependent on undependable things in areas affecting public safety and human life. And what that reveals to us is there's really two choices. We can either make this IT and infrastructure more dependable, and we should, that takes time, unfortunately, or we could depend upon it less in parallel. So what that reveals is that our dependence should be proportional and commensurate to how trustworthy and dependable it is. And I think the more thoughtful conversations here are as we retool and recalibrate parts of healthcare, cybersecurity, and sound dependence models and contingency plans for more resilient and anti-fragile infrastructure have to be part of that conversation so that we don't fix eight of our 10 problems, but we, we have a much more sustainable model going forward. I am optimistic. While there's much to be concerned about, um, sometimes you have to burn your hand on the stove to know it's hot, and sometimes you have to admit you have a problem before you can solve it. And eyes are much wider open than they have been before, so we may finally be able to dust off that uh, that specific task force report and dig in and look for this. One of the, the efforts I'm very much looking forward to seeing and I expect Congress is going to ask for is after the COVID crisis, you know, maybe going back to that task force report and saying which subset of this was most relevant to our preparedness and what could we focus in on to invest in going forward. So we have a lot of the, the work done in advance. It may not just be mapping some of those good ideas from before the crisis to what happened during the crisis. And potentially that could be a short list of things that can be done to make the future safer sooner. Thank you for tuning in to Prima's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month podcast series. Should you have any questions regarding this podcast or any podcast in this series, please email education at primacentral.org. To learn more about Prima's educational resources, please visit primacentral.org. Thanks again.